Hey everyone, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Uh, we're getting deeper into December, so uh, no shortage of uh, huge events out there that are going to affect this presidential race. Um, obviously, we have impeachment articles now for the first time, two articles of impeachment. That will almost certainly lead to Donald Trump being impeached, at least on one of them, if not both. That will lead to a Senate trial in, in January. And um, um, we'll probably spend a lot more time in January talking about impeachment and its effect on the general election. The one thing that is interesting to think about is just, you know, all those senators that are running for president on the Democratic side have to be in Washington uh, during that impeachment phase, just as a lot of people in Iowa are making the decision. So it's going to be fascinating to see how they handle that. Are they you know, taking the equivalent of a red eye to Iowa when they can? Are they doing a lot of satellite TV and radio interviews? Are they doing virtual events? It's it's just going to be fascinating. They can't control that. And obviously, they have to execute their uh, constitutional duties before the campaign. But that's going to be fascinating to watch. I think, you know, the, the race uh, continues, I think, to surprise people just because, you know, you, you and all the polling that's come out, you know, in the last couple of weeks, you know, you see Joe Biden, um, for the most part, uh, continuing to hold his strength, not necessarily growing his vote, but, you know, there was a poll that had him in, in the lead in Iowa for the first time. Other ones have it, you know, where you've got three or four candidates really bunched together, you know, growing his lead nationally. So showing quite a bit of resilience there. Bernie Sanders, I think, likewise, showing a lot of resilience, um, kind of even adding to his vote total uh, from a polling perspective where he looked 60 or 90 days ago. Mayor Pete, you know, continues to look like he's performing quite well in Iowa, New Hampshire. Um, He's spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to grow his base, which if he does well in Iowa, New Hampshire, will I think define whether he's our Democratic nominee or just someone who had a good couple of nights. Can he grow his support with younger voters and and with some working class, you know, Democrats and and in particular the African-American and and Latino communities? So we're going to talk to my guest today, David Axelrod, about the race. I, I think something I'd be surprised if he doesn't um, say, and, and I certainly believe, is this race is so so early still. It's so incredibly fluid. And so uh, we really shouldn't be surprised by any outcome that we get in Iowa, New Hampshire, and even South Carolina, because I think there's going to be a lot of movement. And again, in this race, it doesn't mean necessarily someone who's in seventh or eighth place is going to end up in first. But you know, the difference between fourth and first in Iowa, New Hampshire is enormous, even if the difference between those two from a percentage standpoint is modest. And so, you know, most people in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in Nevada and South Carolina, even people who, you know, are know they're going to participate in those contests, you know, they're not paying a lot of attention. Even if they are, they haven't decided who they're going to vote or caucus for. So, you know, we're about approaching that time where people are going to start making decisions. And um, that may be reflected in the polling that comes out in those states. It, it may not. We may have to wait till the actual night of those events. But, you know, uh, I I think that's what's really going to change. While we have impeachment overhanging us in January, and that could be a major factor, maybe it's not, we'll have to see. We know the biggest factor will be just the calendar, and people are going to be forced, um, you know, to make decisions. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, uh, we were uh, had Kevin Sheiky, Bloomberg's manager, on the podcast last week. If you haven't listened to that, really encourage you to download that and get a better sense of their strategy. Um, He's now passed $100 million in television advertising. Um, I'm sure he has spent uh, tens of millions of dollars uh, digitally as well. So, um, you know, probably by the time we get to to January, certainly by mid-January, he might have spent more than the entire field combined. So, again, I I find myself fascinated, you know, as a political practitioner, former political practitioner, and and just from a political science uh, standpoint, whether someone can pull this off. 
You know, can they skip the first four states, spend all this money, essentially run a national campaign? And, um, you know, Mike Bloomberg, obviously, is not in this just to do well. So he's already gone in some polls from zero to five. Let's say it goes to five to 15. On the one hand, that's quite an accomplishment. On the other hand, it doesn't win you the nomination. So I think that's going to bear uh, close uh, following in the days ahead. Um, so my guest today, uh, David Axelrod, is is someone that I have spent an enormous amount of time working with. The first U.S. Senate race I managed way back in 1994 David was our lead strategist and, and ad maker. He and I became business partners um, after the 2000 election and, and worked on a lot of races all over the country, uh, governor's races, congressional races, Senate races, um, one of those Senate races being Barack Obama's. And really one of the pleasures of my lifetime was working alongside with David through all those years, but in particular during the Obama years. Um, he's obviously a, a brilliant message strategist. You see him now. Uh, on both of his hot podcast, Hacks on Tap and, and Axe Files, which I would highly encourage you to check out if you haven't, and on CNN, you know, as a political commentator. But that's based on just, I think, his brilliance around political messaging, uh, language, speech making, ad writing. He's, he's the best I've ever worked with. And so I'm eager to go deep with David on both the primary and general, and in particular, talk about what some of these candidates um, need to do to grow their support, because even someone like Mayor Pete or Biden, who's doing well, Sanders, Warren's dipped a little bit, you know, but I still think has potential. You know, even at their high watermark, that's not going to get the job done. You know, how are you going to go from 18 or 20 or 22, ultimately into the 30s, then ultimately into the 40s? so that you can win this. So uh, I'm really eager to talk to David about that and also talk to him about the general election. Um, you know, David, like I, has, has spent an enormous amount of time um, in these battleground states, uh, studying them, consuming research about them. And I'm really eager to hear David's view of, you know, what are the challenges uh, for the Democrats as they think about Trump and, and where are the advantages and, and what's the general election we're likely sailing into. So I think it'll be a great discussion with someone who... Um, is obviously still following the race very closely, but wasn't too long ago in the arena himself as just a key practitioner uh, in our national politics. So uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation. My old partner in crime, David Axelrod, thanks for uh, joining the pod. Yes, sir. Imagine where we were, was it 12 years ago now? 11 years ago, we were like three weeks away from the Iowa caucuses. Right. And it was freezing and it was fun. Most fun I've ever had, man. As much pressure as there was. Well, let's start there. So obviously we went through that together. And a lot of other things, Bluff. Yeah, you and I, man, we would not pass a vet. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> Although maybe everything's changed with Trump. <laughs> but but you went through the caucuses then four years earlier with Edwards. You guys didn't win, but you closed strong, almost won. And so I want to start there. We obviously have, you know, a lot of polling out there. I think we see important trends in Iowa. But how much fluidity do you think there still is left in this thing? Like, is, you know, when, when do you think people begin to lock in out there? Yeah, you know, um, if you look at polling, you'd say a lot because there are people who are still saying they could, There, you know, I think maybe a majority of people still saying they could change their minds. Uh, but it's a large percentage in any case. And so, you know, there's always that possibility. The question is, where is that fluidity? Is the fluidity among the top four? Could Klobuchar, who's been coming on, can she close into that, you know, into the top tier? Um, how will the impeachment trial play if all these senators have to be in Washington in the month of Iowa instead of campaigning 
in the run-up to the caucuses and how much of a disadvantage does that create for them. So I don't know the answer to that. I suspect there's a, a fair amount of fluidity among the top four. And, you know, you could see some surprises there. I think the only the other wild card would be Klobuchar. You know, Booker has a decent organization out there. And, you know, he's, I think, a very attractive candidate. He's done well in debates, but he hasn't been able to catch on. So it's hard to see where the other surprises might come from at this point. But within the top, you know, I think there's some ability to see people shifting around. Now, something I've heard you say more times than I care to remember, but it's 100% accurate is, you know, in elections, voters aren't looking for a replica, they're looking for a remedy. Right. So you've often talked about that from a general election standpoint, but do you think one of the reasons that Mayor Pete is doing so well is that even in the for Democratic primary voters, he seems to be the person that is the most different from Donald Trump? I do. I do. I think he is, uh, he is the, he's the antithesis of Donald Trump, just as Trump was the antithesis of Barack Obama in 2016, and that had appeal to uh, not just uh, general election voters who voted for him, but obviously some people in the primary. You know, by temperament and intellect, uh, Judge is a great contrast to Trump. And uh, I, I do think that that is part of the reason that he's leveraged his way into this race, um, particularly as he's uh, honed his message in the in the later months uh, and started talking about, you know, what are we going to do the day after Donald Trump leaves and what kind of shape is the country going to be in and what kind of leadership are we going to need to, you know, bring this country back uh, together. I think there's a lot of concern about that. And, you know, you know, as often happens in politics uh, and in campaigns, he's asking a question to which he hopes a lot of people will see him as the answer because he is, you know, his metabolism, his approach um, is so much antithetical to Trump. My question is, you know, I, I think there are a lot of obstacles for Pete between now and the uh, opportunity to be in a general election. Uh, but my question is, if he were in the general election, how would that play out? And how would Trump deal with a guy as unflappable as that? You know, it'd be an interesting dynamic. Yeah, kind of some Muhammad Ali rope-a-dope. He's a good counterpuncher. Exactly. I mean, I just, you know, I, my view is, um, and I wrote about this in the Times a few uh, months ago, I, I think the way you beat Trump is not to meet blunt force with blunt force. The way you beat Trump is jujitsu. You use his negative energy against him. Because I think the big question for people in 2020 is going to be not, are we better off than we were four years ago, but can we actually do this for another four years? Can we wake up every day to these crazy tweets and tantrums, these gratuitous fights that take up so much time and energy and are so unnecessary, and all the chaos that reigns around him? I think the greatest threat to him from this impeachment is less the fact that he's going to be impeached and probably acquitted, but the fact that it just underscores the uh, utter chaos that reigns around him. And so, you know, the calm person who doesn't take the bait and counter punches and so on, you know, that might be a good strategy uh, for dealing with Trump. And, you know, so I'm looking for the jujitsu player here. Right, right. Um, well, let's talk about our old friend Joe Biden. 
first of all, you'll correct me if, if you disagree with this. My sense is if if somehow he is alive enough so that he's got the opportunity to win South Carolina, um, you know, at that point, I think he's in the driver's seat. But I'd love to talk about two things. So one, how do you, what does he need to do, you know, in those those first three gates, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, to have the right, you know, to have the chance to win South Carolina? And talk a little bit about after that. I mean, I, I do think he seems to be, I think you talked about this on Hacks on Tech. He's like winning the race, but he's the candidate we all talk the least about. Um, and so, I, you know, at this point, I'd rather have his stock than anybody else's, just given what comes after South Carolina. But but just diagnose, I mean, the threat to him is, I guess, that he comes in maybe fifth in Iowa, fifth, you know, fourth in New Hampshire, just the air comes out of the balloon. Yes. I mean, if he dro- I think if he drops out of the top three, if he drops out of the top four, that's disastrous. And, you know, the Klobuchar thing is something that I would be watching out of my side view mirror uh, if I were them, uh, because... She is fishing in the same pond. Uh, her appeal is is most heavily. I mean, obviously, she may be getting some who respond to her as a as a, a woman, but uh, her appeal is very much to uh, non college uh, whites, moderates. Um, you know, many of the same voters who Biden is counting on. To the extent that she moves up, it could be some at the expense of Mayor Pete, and it could some be at the expense of Biden. If she were to pass Biden, you know, and you had uh, Warren Buttigieg, Sanders, and Klobuchar all ahead of him, I mean, that would be disastrous. Fourth is not great, but fifth is disastrous. But, you know, let's take the optimistic view from the Biden a perspective. He's done a pretty good job of lowering expectations for Iowa and New Hampshire. <laughs> Masterfully. Yeah. yeah. So if he were actually to win Iowa, I mean, the Emerson poll that came out yesterday had him leading in Iowa. I'm not sure that I believe that. But if he were to actually win Iowa, I mean, that could be game, set, and match. Uh, because it would be so unexpected, and he would go into New Hampshire with momentum. And even if he didn't win New Hampshire, I think he would uh, certainly have the momentum to go into South Carolina as a competitive candidate. My, you know, you, you're as good a student of the Iowa process as anyone. You've worked field in Iowa. You know, my concern for Biden would be just the enthusiasm gap that, you know— it. Part of winning, you know, organization is clearly important. And uh, Elizabeth Warren understood that. She's got the great Emily Parcell, our old uh, colleague from Obama days, uh, overseeing her her early state operations, and particularly Iowa. And Emily's a great Iowa hand, and they've done a great job. That's going to be meaningful. Uh, but enthusiasm is also important. And, um, you know, Biden's I think, is catching up on organization uh, but, you know, you look at the reports from his events, and they're, they're lightly attended, uh, mostly older voters. They're lightly attended. And you wonder, you know, how many people are going to trudge to the caucuses for him. And uh, so, you know, I, I'm not predicting that he'll win. I'm just saying that and there's probably a better chance that he'll underperform than overperform. But if he does overperform, um, that that will be a seismic shift in this race. So listen, David, I think everybody's crystal ball's hazy this far out of Iowa, and I think this race in particular is hard to yes. predict. But if, you, if your sense, both based on, you know, you're following this race, you know, very closely as a commentator, you've been through these wars. Um, 
Do you think it's likely we're heading to a scenario where we have four candidates, maybe if Klobuchar gains strength five, all roughly in the same range? Or do you still think there's an opportunity for somebody to break out? And I guess that's a question. Like, is there somebody in this field who could get up to 32, 33 and, you know, be the clear winner, which I think in this race, even if you won Iowa by five or six points, that would be an enormous boost for that candidate. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's. It, I've never really seen one like this before, David, and I've been watching this, you know, even longer than you. Uh, and I've never quite seen a race quite like this. You know, Warren, you know, she looked like she might have breakout potential, um, you know, but part of the predicate was that, that Sanders would continue to fade. Uh, you know, I think the whole Medicare for all uh, kerfluffle uh, was a you know, speed bump for her. And at the same time, Sanders, who will always pass the purity test, um, you know, was resurgent and um, or at least to some degree resurgent. And he's got, you know, this reliable following that provides him not only the uh, numbers to to be in the mix, but also renewable uh, sources of revenue that keep him going. Um, So the prospect of him fading out seems less to me now than it was, you know, a few months ago. Uh, That's a problem for Warren. So they're kind of like a check on each other. You know, Buttigieg has eaten into Warren's college-educated voters and eaten into older voters for Biden. So he's taking some pieces from both of them. So there's this kind of weird sort of equilibrium that is holding the top four together in these early states. And I don't know if any one of them has the capacity uh, to break out. I think it's pretty likely that the four of them will go on to Nevada and then to South Carolina. And, you know, what shape they arrive in, I don't know. But you know, the person who, like I said, I think if Biden were to do very well, you know, were to win Iowa, for example, you know, he might be able to get a little bit of altitude, you know, if people start looking at him differently and thinking, well, you know, he can't, he, he obviously weathered the storm and uh, performed, but I don't know. I mean, what do you think? You think, do you see anybody with breakout potential here right now? I mean, I guess Buttigieg, if he wins the first two primaries, but he's got a uh, you know, that would be quite a feat. And, you know, he's ahead in the aggregate polling in both those states. He still has to figure out how to solve this uh, problem with African-Americans. And the big question is, if he were to win a couple, would he get a second look? Right. He probably only does if Biden's done really poorly. See, that's the thing. I mean, you and I have been through this. I mean, like if you look in New Hampshire and I've got to reflect, we, 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 you and I, the entire campaign, we were so terrible between Iowa and New Hampshire, right? We made a bunch of mistakes, but You know, I look back on it like we were so happy that John Edwards came in second, barely over Hillary. Like we would have been better off if he had done terribly because he stole a bunch of our vote in in, in New Hampshire. So you can't control who else is on the field and at what strength. So, so much of it comes down. I agree. Biden's the person, I think, who, if he does well early, has the easiest chance building his vote numbers into the 30s, low 40s. Now, if Sanders were, you know, to win Iowa and, and do well in New Hampshire and Warren underperform, like, 
I don't know if he can get to 50 in this field, but he could also grow. Those are the two most natural. So let's talk about Mayor Pete. I'm interested in this. So, and we could have this conversation about each of the candidates, but because I think he may have the most acute challenge to grow his coalition and vote. Let's say Mayor Pete does what the polls suggest he might. He wins Iowa. He might even win New Hampshire, come in the top two. He heads to South Carolina. Um, both for South Carolina and then obviously, um, you know, different. We had some time between South Carolina and Super Tuesday, about 10 days if I recall. Um, you know, in this race, you only have, uh, you know, Saturday to Tuesday, which is a brutal turnaround. What do you think the composition of the field would be most to his liking? Presumably, it's a really, really weakened Biden. But I'm just curious, like, what what does that need to look like for him to go from where he is now to the 40s, you know, getting African-American vote, getting, you know, some of the younger vote that maybe is, is you know, uh, attached to Sanders now. Yeah, I mean, part of it is a question of how much African-American vote is available to him. You know, there, there's been a lot of discussion about this issue of uh, homophobia among some segment of the African-American community. You know, the opponents will say, well, he's got a, he's got a checkered record in South Carolina. I think the real truth is a lot of African-Americans don't know who he is at all. Uh, you know, you see these polls, 60% of uh, African-Americans in South Carolina don't know who Pete Buttigieg is. Now, of that 60%, can, you know, can he make a move with some of them? The thing is, he doesn't have to get a majority of those voters. He just has to be in the game. He has to get, you know, 20 to 30% of them. And, you know, maybe if he... Uh, if he has two big breakout performances in Iowa, New Hampshire, he'll have that uh, opportunity. Uh, you know, my question is, um, candidates like him have traditionally had challenges in the African-American community, particularly in states like South Carolina, that are cultural. And not about, I'm not talking about his sexuality, I'm talking about, you know, there was a great little thing, you may have seen the Saturday Night Live skit, where Colin Jost, who happened, I guess, was a housemate or something of Buttigieg's in uh, at Harvard, played him, you know, with his sleeves rolled up and everything in the debate. And the moderator said, "Why are you having so much trouble with the African American community?" He kind of waves it. He looks at himself and he waves his arms up and down. He says, "Well, maybe it's this, you know." And uh, you know, so the question is: Is there a can he break through with uh, those people? A weakened Biden would be helpful. Probably. Um, certainly it'd be helpful generally for those voters who are more moderate to conservative and are looking for an alternative. They're unlikely to turn to Warren and Sanders. But uh, I just think the lack of familiarity is as much a problem for him. And he's not going to have a whole lot of time to fill that gap. So I'm talking around your question because I don't quite know the answer. But I think a configuration, the best configuration for him turning into Super Tuesday would be, you know, Biden, you know, who has been severely weakened by the first four contests and, you know, Sanders and Warren still in the race and all the other moderates having faded away. And then, you know, there's the Bloomberg question as to whether he then becomes a factor. Well, let's talk about Bloomberg. I think sort of that three-way configuration with Sanders and Warren both alive, 
I think from Pete's standpoint, he might prefer Warren to be on top of that duo just because, you know, maybe he then gets some of the younger vote that's going to Sanders. But let's talk about Bloomberg. So aside from the fact that you and I clearly retired too prematurely from the political advertising business. Without uh, question, let's <laughs> stipulate that. <laughs> you know, uh, so we've never seen this before. I'm fascinated just from a political science perspective. We're just talking about these first four states, and and we've got somebody who's ignoring them and planting a flag in every other state, going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars. What's your view of that? And again, maybe this comes down to the question we we're just talking about, like the configuration of those candidates coming out of, you know, if Biden's done well and has strength, there's there may not be an opening from Bloomberg. But just what do you make? Like, what is there a chance that somehow he could make this work? And do well enough on each of those Tuesdays in March where most of the country votes, you don't have a shot at this thing. Or are we talking about someone who the ceiling might be 10 or 15 percent, which would still be amazing to go from nothing to that. But that's not going to get you, you know, the nomination. Yeah, I think the second is more likely than the first. I don't think they know. My sense of this is that Mike Bloomberg genuinely is concerned about Trump and uh sees himself as someone who could take Trump on, has the resources and the wherewithal to take uh, Trump on. I think he also is a guy who believes he has much to offer and is 77 years old and knows that he's never going to have another opportunity. And I think he, he decided to take a leap here without a clear sense of a path and hoping that, you know, the, the, the balls separate on the pool table in a way that gives him a shot. You know, the interesting thing, I was just thinking about this the other day, because, you know, he's moved up in a couple of national polls this week to five, six percent after spending 80 million dollars in the first couple of weeks on TV. And this strategy of advertising in, in every state, but, you know, Alaska and Hawaii, part of it is, you know, to prepare for Super Tuesday and beyond. I'm wondering if part of it isn't to influence these national polls. Uh, because if you advertise everywhere, you're going to pick up some support everywhere. You know, these polls are not only ta- being taken in the, in the early Democratic states, they're being taken nationally. And they probably understood that if they start looking like they're picking up, that these things can become self-perpetuating. If Mike Bloomberg continued to bump around at 1% and 2 and 3%, you know, the whole thing could collapse. So that's one of the benefits of all the spending that he's doing. But I honestly, my question has always been, and I don't know what your thought is, David, I I just, you know, I don't know where his constituency is in the Democratic Party. I know that there are a lot of, I mean, there there are obviously some, you know, Wall Street Democrats. There are fallen away Republicans who don't feel they have a place in Trump's party anymore, maybe some suburban voters. Uh, but, you know, the, the, despite all the good work he's done on guns and climate and health care and other issues, you know, the left has a problem with him uh, you know, around stop and frisk and his Wall Street ties and general antipathy to billionaires. You know, he's not exactly culturally akin to working class whites. I mentioned stop and frisk. That's not a help with black voters. Um, So, you know, cobbling together a constituency in the Democratic Party is no easy task for him. Right. I think that's right. I mean, I think um, I agree with their assessment, you know, which is what I I think did cause Bloomberg to get in somewhat haphazardly at the end. um, Because, you know, he's worried that Trump may win. I, I agree with that assessment. You and I will talk about the general election in a minute. But 
but, you know, our voters, for the most part, every survey suggests that voters are satisfied with our field. They feel like they've got a variety of choice. Yeah, they're, they're more satisfied than in 08. You know, the market of donors is crying out for more options, perhaps, but not the market of voters. Uh, and ultimately, you, you know, you do have to deal with voters. And uh, that's the other thing about Bloomberg. You know, among his uh, many strengths is not personability. He's not a guy who loves either the, the scrum with the media or interacting with people, both of which are necessary parts of this process. And so, you know, a billion dollars can buy you a lot or however much he's going to spend. I, I'd say half a billion by Super Tuesday is a conservative estimate. You know, that can buy you a lot, but eventually you're actually going to have to interact with people. And, uh, you know, you have to be able to do that and stand the kind of scrutiny that is a necessary part of this process. The better you do, you know, my old uh, adage that, that I got from uh, an alderman here in Chicago, the higher a monkey. I love this one. Higher a monkey, I know where you're going. The higher a monkey yeah. climbs on the pole, the more you can see his ass. That's the way it is in presidential politics. <laughs> the higher you go on the pole, the more people are searching. And, the, you know, so... He's just got to be prepared for all of that. It's, it's, it, you know, there's no easy route here for anybody. Well, it's crazy. You'd think that, you know, someone who was mayor of New York with that media market, you know, this would be akin, but it's not. I mean, Kevin Madden, who, you know, was Romney's spokesperson, said something yes. recently I saw, which is basically your worst day in a governor's mansion or in City Hall is every day on a presidential campaign trail. Like, I think even for somebody like Bloomberg, the velocity and intensity is going to be crazy. Let me to ask you about, you mentioned all the television uh, money he's spending, and obviously he's doing digital as well. I think one of the reasons Mayor Pete surged is, is, is he went on TV. So I think we live in a world now where, um, and I believe this, I mean, I think the 2006-20 election is going to be largely fought on phones and tablets, but, um, but TV clearly is still powerful. So what do you think, I think there's a belief in, I, I know this from the donor community, um, I think uh, even some of those that cover politics, like television is a waste, but we have all this evidence to suggest that actually it's still a very powerful medium. Yes. I mean, it's still sort of the broadest gauged weapon in the arsenal. Uh, it's still very, very powerful. Um, you, you know, you can reach the largest number of people the, the quickest. Uh, and, you know, you, it, television done well on the back of the brain as well as the front of the brain and, you know, uh, both in terms of delivering facts and delivering feelings. Um, you know, even as we go to a digital world, what that's going to mean is that content is going to be delivered differently, but the content's still important. And television, you know, images and music and all the things that you, the world you in which you and I lived for so long, you know, where every frame you consider, you know, what is the what is the signal that that image is sending? What is the signal that that music is sending? You know, how do we phrase this to have the maximum impact? That You know, it speaks to how powerful all that is. So, yeah, I think it's what ha what's happened in Iowa is instructive. And, you know, we should say by way of disclaimer that the, the firm that, uh, that we were partners in, AKPD, is doing, we separated ourselves from that a decade ago, but they're doing the Buttigieg race. It is not a coincidence that his rise in Iowa 
uh, began in early fall when he started advertising. Now, the advertising was good, and it was consistent with the message he was delivering, which is really important. You know, if there's dissonance between the message you're delivering and, you know, in your speeches and debates and so on is different than what people see in the ads, then the ads are going to be much less effective. But they've had a very well-conceived campaign, and you can chart his progress uh, really from the time they started advertising now three and a half months in or thereabouts. So I guess it was summer when they started. So it's yes, it's important. And um, anyone who dismisses the Bloomberg buy or dismisses, you know, the, Pete Buttigieg had money. Right? Amy, Amy Klobuchar didn't have money. Pete Buttigieg was able to raise the money to get on the air. He used it to great effect. One of the things I think the uh, Warren campaign may end up regretting is having not advertised in the fall. Uh, yep. You know, they have been. And they had the money to do so. They did, yeah. and they they were running a digital strategy. Our old buddy Joe Rosbars, who I know you've had on your podcast, I think has done a brilliant job. But to my mind, and you and I have talked about this offline, you know, her biggest barrier or one of her biggest barriers is just the the, uh, the perception of Professor Warren, Harvard, as folksy as she can sound. She also, I've got a plan for this, I've got a plan for that. And she sometimes sounds like a TED Talk. And it sends the impression that she doesn't have a connection. And you, know, you can see it in the numbers. She's not broken through with working class white voters, even though so much of her of her policy is aimed at boosting, you know, working class people. And I think uh, if people got a consistent dose of her biography, you know, from Norman, Oklahoma, through her rise uh, and all that she had to do to get there and, you know, her three brothers in the military, she raised this in a debate. It was very effective down in Houston. That should have been on the air. That's the kind of stuff that can really make a difference in laying the foundation for everything else. And um, so television is important, and uh, it's not a substitute for everything else. And this is where the Bloomberg thing is an interesting experiment. I mean, he's not really out and about. He did his first interview in the last few days, a month into his, his campaign. So he's not doing a lot of the things that you should be doing. Uh, but he's doing that TV thing in a way it's never been done before. And we'll see if that the one can compensate for the other. I think it has to be a mix. It's going to be fascinating. Well, you're, it's interesting in this TV discussion. You know, I think Trump, you know, it's mostly Twitter. But, you know, he's kind of a social media digital first principle. His campaign is run by digital marketers. But, you know, we saw they ran a World Series ad. There's rumors they may run a Super Bowl ad. Like, I think they're going to run a lot more TV than they did last time. By the way, the discordance between those ads and what Trump does on social media and rallies may be the biggest we've ever seen in American politics. To your point, it's going to be fascinating. Yeah, although, Um, you know, even the ad, the reason reason that World Series ad was, I thought, good was because it acknowledged that he's, he's Kind of an asshole, you know. Yes, uh, I mean that he had was that sort one of line about not being a nice guy, right? Yeah, and uh, so they understand what their liability is, and they're trying to turn it into a virtue. And I think to a lot of his supporters, it is a virtue. They sent him there as kind of a Stutznet kind of deal in the you know to throw into the system to disrupt everything. And, you know, so the argument that you know you you, you want me to kick everybody in the ass, and that's what I'm doing. You know, it's probably the right argument 
for them. The one thing on Trump I would say that makes him sort of sui generis, you know, from the beginning of his campaign in 2015, he basically owned cable television coverage. He understood his great inspiration is if you're willing to light yourself on fire, they're going to cover you every time. And, you know, he must wear an asbestos suit, but he lights himself on fire on an almost daily basis. And so he dominates coverage. And, uh, you know, very few candidates can do what he's doing. And that does reduce the importance of TV ads. And I've always felt like television ads in the general election are much less impactful than earlier in a campaign because these guys get covered so intensively that people tend to default to the the coverage and the, the, the events they watch more than relying on ads to give them information. Right. So uh, let's talk about that because, you know, if you look at 2012, I think, you know, some of the early ads we did before Romney was a fully Ford figure really hurt him, you know, and, and defined him. We know yeah. Bush did that to Kerry, you know, in a different era, Reagan did that to Dole and, and Reagan did it to Mondale. So, I want to talk about the general, but how concerned are you or should Democrats be that what is how important is it that like our process, even if the primary is still going on, it, it's pretty clear by April who our nominee is going to be so they can start the general election versus if we lose two to three months, how dangerous is that period? Because those may be the, the time Trump's already trying to define the entire field, I think somewhat smartly. If he zeroes in on, you know, the most likely candidate when they're not able to fight back. How big of a problem will that be for the nominee? The most vivid example of this was uh, in 1988 when Roger Ailes ran probably one of the most impactful negative ad campaigns against Mike Dukakis and uh, completely defined him. And, you know, I expect that they will be brutal in trying to define the Democratic nominee and they'll have the resources to do it. And that's where TV is probably going to be employed first for him. It's less to define him than to define the opponent. You know, you and I both know Donald Trump, he can't win this election without destroying his opponent because he's never gotten to 50 percent in his entire presidency, and he's unlikely to. So that means that he has to persuade people, as he did in 2016, that somehow the opponent is less desirable than him. And so that's a real concern. And um, the longer the Democratic race goes and the more resources are depleted in that race, theoretically, the more vulnerable that candidate will be. So I don't have a prescription for that, but it is a concern. Well, I mean, it's such a hard decision for people, but my hope, maybe this is super naive, is, you know, if we do get to the point after March 17th, you know, where... You know, it's clear there's maybe two or three candidates who have money and they're getting 15, 18 percent, but they're not going to be there. Like, you know, given the the threat to the world and the entire enterprise of, uh, you know, a second Trump term versus, you know, just surviving the first four, that folks get out. But I, I worry about that. Like, I, I think that period from kind of mid-March to June, if our nominee can't fully take the field. Very perilous. Yeah, it's very perilous. Let, let me just say, first of all, no one ever would accuse you of being naive. Uh, so <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, you're basically delivering a message here. And, you know, I, the one thing I would say is, and you know this, the hardest thing in politics is to tell people who have the money to go on that it's over. And, um, you know, 
it would take a lot of selflessness to make such a decision. And, you know, if there are a number of people in the race with money, they may want to play it out and try and drive it to a convention. Uh, so as to see if that, you know, in that configuration, they can put a coalition together. So it's, it's like a, it's like a big mess, you know? Yeah, it is. It is. So let's talk about the general. Now, this is going to seem a little bit like we're fanboying, or at least I am on our former boss. But one of the things as I look at the general election in Electoral College, even with a big caveat that Trump probably can't get to 50. So that's a, a helpful dynamic for the nominee. I just think there's still an underappreciation for Barack Obama's political strengths. Like the truth is getting to 50 percent in enough states to win the Electoral College because almost all those states have more conservative voters than liberals. Um, it's harder for us to turn out our vote. It's just hard. And I think about Wisconsin. So, you know, we have to get the 58-year-old, you know, iron worker who was Obama twice Trump back. We've got to get the 21-year-old African-American in Milwaukee to register and vote and maybe volunteer. And the 18-year-old kid who does come from Cleveland to Madison to register and vote in Wisconsin. Like, if we don't have a candidate who can do all those three things, we're not going to win. Um, but but I do think that what while Trump can't get to 50 what does concern me from a raw vote standpoint is I think he's going to find and register and turn out every person imaginable that looks like the rest of his base. And I think he's leveraging impeachment smartly. So um, I guess when you think about the general election, um, what gives you optimism if you're a Democrat uh, and what gives you concern that we might not crack the code to 270? I'll just let you spout off your axe because you, you know, um, I'm eager to, I know I'm eager to hear your thoughts on this because this is ultimately what matters. Well, first of all, let, let's start with rea a reality check. You know, uh, Donald Trump will lose the general election and he may lose it in terms of popular vote by, you know, millions more than he lost the last. Right. He lost by three million last time. I mean, he could lose by five million this time. But that's not our system. Our system is this electoral system. And the question is, can he win enough states to get to... 270, you bring up Wisconsin. Wisconsin is a very, very closely divided state, and I'm sure that they will have uh, a vigorous uh, registration drive to do exactly what you uh, said. I agree that he's using impeachment uh, as a good tool to rally his base. I, I have some question as to what impeachment actually is going to mean, you know, since it will be over by February and whether there's a carryover all the way to November for his people is, you know, I think an open question. Uh, but so on the playing field of the Electoral College, which remember he wanted to abolish three weeks before the last election, <laughs> on the playing field of the Electoral College, he is very competitive. His, he's got, you know, a very strong economy you know, also not in the interest of fanboying, but just on the basic facts of it. He took a, a very strong economy and it's continued to grow. And he probably juiced it with, the, you know, to some degree with the tax cuts. And, and the history of this is if you have a very strong economy, that gives you a big advantage. The real mystery is how can a guy who has the lowest unemployment in 50 years and, you know, a growing economy be struggling as Trump is. And it, it, that is a measure of his weakness, that he's so underperforming uh, the economy. And that goes to the thing we were talking about before, which is sheer exhaustion. 
Um, so what gives me hope is that um, I think he will mobilize his own base and the Democratic base. And I think there is a fundamental element of exhaustion that is growing by the day with Trump. And, it's, and, and the, the, the thing about the jujitsu theory is Donald Trump is going to get more hyperbolic as the year goes on, more frantic, more divisive, more outrageous. And every act will become one more bit of evidence as to why we can't do this for four more years. And I think ultimately that, that adds up to a victory for a Democrat, unless the Democrat is so uh, open to uh, caricature that all the things you've warned about in terms of what Trump is going to do depresses their performance sufficiently so that he can win. Talk about Obama for a second, though. I think what people underappreciated was how much he appreciated and the campaign appreciated that this is a big, diverse country. Right. And he spoke in a language that created the biggest possible bridge for people to walk across uh, to vote for him. He stayed away from culturally divisive issues. He spoke very much about the economy and building the middle class and helping people become middle class. And he appealed, uh, you know, to the better angels of our nature, as Lincoln said. And he made it easy for those voters to come his way. And I think there's a lesson in that that Democratic candidates should learn. You, you know, I completely reject this theory that we can, that all, you, all we have to do as Democrats is talk to Democrats. And that, uh, you know, if you just get the base out, that you'll win because of the Electoral College and because these states that are going to determine the election uh, look a lot different than states that are Democratic-based states. You do have to persuade some people to walk across that bridge. And you're not going to do it if you're blowing the bridge up by emphasizing issues that are divisive. That's what Trump wants. Right. That's where Trump wants Democrats to go. And, uh, you know, the question is, will Democrats resist that temptation? Well, to your point about Obama, I mean, he built the, you know, the broadest bridge, but it was with, it's not like he had 50 different messages, right? It was the same language, the same messages. And what drives me crazy about this base versus swing is, you know, as you know, I kind of am fond of math. There's just a simple mathematical exercise, which is how many votes do you need to win Wisconsin, Arizona, Pennsylvania? Right, um, right. And so even in Wisconsin, if, if Hillary had gotten all the Obama votes in Milwaukee, um, you know, that she lost, you know, yeah, she would have won by 6,000 votes, but there was a couple hundred thousand votes she didn't get in blue collar and exurban rural areas. So, but particularly if, if Trump is maximizing turnout and registration, I hope he doesn't as a partisan, but if he does, you're not going to get there with one or the other. You got to put all these, Absolutely. you know, all the, so I'm curious, David, so I've never worked with, you know, or been around anybody so incisive about political messaging than you. And so as you think about the, the the campaign. You wrote about this in the Times. You've talked about exhaustion. You know, do you think that is the North Star as opposed to saying, hey, Trump, you know, Trump, even though we have a low unemployment rate, you know, he's made decisions to help Wall Street people, not people like you. He's hurt manufacturing. His tax cuts went to the wealthy. Like, do you think it is more of a meta, like, we just can't take four more years of this? And basically, as opposed to like, whether it's healthcare, or the economy, I know you have to do it all, but I'm just, I'm curious kind of what you think. Yeah, well, the, I mean, I think that, yeah. that the, the question is, what is your meta message? And what are the messages underneath? Right. And, and how, I think that uh, there are, places that are important to Democrats 
where the exhaustion message is going to be uh, paramount. And I think that that, you know, the suburban areas are, are, come to mind where I think that's going to be very powerful. I also think that the group to watch here are uh, non-college white women who went for Trump by 27 points over Hillary Clinton. But in every bit of research I see are very, very jaundiced about him now. And, you know, I think that with some of those voters, the economic messages are a subset of messages that could be really powerful. I'm a skeptic about white working class men, particularly, you know, older. They seem to be a pretty implacable base for Trump. I think to some degree those messages will be helpful, uh, the economic messages with those voters. I mean, the fact is he sold them an economic bill of goods. Right. Uh, the strength of Trump is is as a cultural warrior. His, you know, he's really been kind of a a bust for those people who, you know, who are looking for economic relief uh, from him. The, the the miners and the man, you know, and others who we saw plant closings and in places where he said plants would would blossom and so on. I don't think that one precludes the other, but at the end of the day. At the end of the day, I think this country is being torn apart right now, and there's chaos, and chaos on a daily basis, and chaos that stands in the way of getting things done, chaos that stands in the way of actually solving the problems that people care about. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that it's going to be as bad or worse if Trump gets reelected. Imagine a Donald Trump who doesn't have to worry about uh, winning reelection who doesn't have to worry about impeachment because he's going to say, well, they tried that and it didn't work. And, it's, you know, I've got a solid hold on my base, so they can't uh, do that. He's going to be completely unrestrained. And, and so what does that portend for the country? I, I do think that's the North Star argument. But, David, I, I, don't, I do think you have to do more than one thing. And, you know, when I think back to 2008, uh, you know, we had a meta message about the politics of our country and which was very riven then as it is now and the need to get past the red state blue state kind of morass that we were in that was very powerful but underneath it we had an economic message that was also powerful so i think we're in a similar situation now no i listen i the point you make that that notion of what's it going to be like when he's completely unchecked, I think for anybody that's a potential voter that's available to the nominee, I think that picture has to be painted. We have to make them think about that because I think that may be a way that we get a lot of important business done with them. I'll tell you, before you wrap up, let me just say this. The one thing that I miss is that you and I had access on a regular basis to uh, research, to polling, to focus groups, to all kinds of data. And the one thing that I really miss about being, you know, in the game is the access to that because, as, you know, we can think we're the smartest guys in the world, but ultimately um, people are counterintuitive and things that seem small are in their minds large and things that seem large, this is often true of the pundit community in Washington, things that seem large there, uh, you know, no one's talking about impeachment at these town hall meetings and so on. They have other concerns. So, you know, I, I really miss that. And so everything I say uh, comes with a disclaimer that I don't have access to the same pool of really great research that, you know, 
Joel Benenson and David Binder and others provided us, Cornell Belcher and others, back in the day, uh, and all of our data people. And, you know, that was a luxury that was a real gift. Yeah, it turns out when you've got all that great data, um, you can make some pretty smart decisions. No, I, I think that's right. Um, yes. And, you know, the truth is, I think you and I had pretty good instincts, you know, and worked a lot together. But I was always, it was always surprising to me how, to your point, like there might there might have been an ad against Obama that we thought would hurt him and voters shrugged their shoulders. Conversely, stuff that we didn't think would work for, you know, against us did. I mean, it's, it's always good to kind of check your ego and experience at the door and just listen to voters. Um, and, you know, Trump's going to have that. I mean, what's interesting to me is, you know, we obviously had more money in 2012. We had more time. So, you know, from a conventional standpoint, you know, I think we had, um, you know, we had um, a more rigorous campaign, um, at least general to general. Trump was a fly by the seat of the pants affair in 16. Well, listen, man, pleasure of my uh, lifetime was, 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 you know, being next to you on all the races we worked with, particularly the Obama years. So yeah, likewise, my friend. I miss that. I, I don't miss much about the business, but I miss uh, being on the phone with you nonstop and, and in meetings and, and just listening to your brilliance. And Well, I've said before, just to not to sound patronizing in response, but you are the greatest campaign manager of my lifetime. And um, I think everybody who was associated with that campaign would say the same. So, you know, ours was a, a rich partnership, and I don't mean that financially, uh, but just uh, in terms of uh, the things that we were able to do together were just an extraordinary experience. And we were blessed to do it in service of a once-in-a-lifetime talent in Barack Obama. So, you know, that's something that yeah. uh, will be a bond between us we'll take with uh, us. for the rest yeah, of our no. lives and a, re and a great gift. It was as close to a West Wing episode as politics get, which is normally not like yes. it, but you're right. And I listen, it's good for both of us. We got out before Trump and all these changes in our media ecosystem where I think- uh, Except for the Bloomberg money, yes. Well, I do, yeah, that that is the big exception there. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Axe, I know you're busy with the Axe Files and Hacks on Tap and uh, you know the, the institute you love so much that you're leading University of Chicago and, and all the common on CNN, but you're, you're nice to spend some time with us. And, um, you know, David and I still have these conversations offline occasionally, so it was nice to bring it behind closed doors uh, and hear your view on the race. We'll be in close touch, my friend. All right, man. Oh, and thanks for beating the Cowboys. That was a big assist from the, the Bears <laughs> to, to my Eagles. Yeah, well, we needed it. Talk to you later. See you. Bye. Well, you know, I was pleased to bring to you the types of conversations David and I still have on the phone and in person when we see each other, where we're just constantly batting back the state of play. And, uh, you know, I think David made a few really interesting points. I, I thought, as I expected him to be, you know, some really super smart points about, you know, some of the challenges Mayor Pete faces to kind of grow his coalition, talking about what Joe Biden needs to do to have an opportunity to win South Carolina and then head into the March contest with a lot of strength. You know, really fascinating discussion about TV advertising. That's obviously a, a business David and I both come from. Um, but I think these days um, in political circles, a lot of people think television ads are a complete waste of money. And as much as I think our politics is gravitating to our phones and tablets, we see in Mayor Pete's rise in Iowa where he did some really early effective ads in Iowa, Bloomberg, you know, quickly gaining some national uh, poll support, uh, really through the power of, of television. So I think David had some really smart thoughts about that's still an important medium in our politics, even with the digital transformation uh, that we're going through. 
And I, I think it was really interesting talking to David about the general election where, um, you know, he's written about this in the New York Times and, and spoken about this, but really to hear him more fully talk about his view that that the North Star message against Trump really is one of the country's exhausted, there's chaos, that's Trump's fault. We kind of need to turn the page and and into a calmer time where we can actually get stuff done and and not have Washington consume people's lives. Really interesting. Um, and I think um, a lot of people may disagree with that because they think it needs to be a core economic message or a core healthcare message, climate change. Those are all going to be part of the campaign. But I think one of the, the things David has always done so well is really like, what is our North Star? What is the one thing above all else that we're trying to communicate and align everything to that? Speeches and interviews and advertising and organizing. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And, and I suspect that there's some truth to that. Um, and so if, if, in fact, that's true, I, I think one of the things that will be interesting is how much does that affect, you know, who Democrats nominate? Uh, are they looking for someone who might most credibly be that alternative? I mean, David Axelrod often describes, um, you know, elections, particularly when you're running against an incumbent or if there is an open seat race, generally voters aren't looking for the replica of the person they're, you know, replacing. Uh, they're looking for the remedy. So, you know, in that case, it may be the person who's least like Trump, temperamentally certainly, uh, who may have an advantage. So uh, I think his thoughts are really important fodder for our general election planning, but also I think are interesting as we think about how uh, that may affect primary voters and, and caucus attenders' view uh, of these candidates in in the closing days. So uh, we have a, a debate next week. It, uh, I do think it'll be interesting. It's happening right before Christmas, Jewish holidays. You've got um, a lot of people distracted. Um, so it'll be interesting uh, to see what kind of both viewership the debate gets and then residually the sort of clips and social media coming out of it. Does it have an effect? You, you think about that. Let, let's say this debate ends up being something that's not tremendously important because people are distracted. You've also still got impeachment going on. You know, the debates in January may also be at conflict with, you know, the impeachment calendar, uh, you know, during a Senate trial. So, so what's interesting is there may be that one massive debate that always matters before, you know, events like Iowa and New Hampshire. But, um, you know, and a lot of this depends on when the Senate impeachment trial starts and, and ends. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of things competing for the oxygen out there, which I think is going to be fascinating. Um, and, and I'm not sure who that advantage is or, or who it does and or if it does. But, you know, I'm, I'll be obviously interested in the next debate. Uh, Mayor Pete's doing quite well. Do candidates, unlike last time, uh, really come after him and, and challenge him? Um, you know, Sanders uh, has, has shown some resilience. Uh, does anybody decide to tussle with him? Um, Joe Biden obviously has also shown resilience. He was kind of off-Broadway a little bit the last two debates. The other candidates didn't spend much time with him, but will that change? So so I'm very interested in each candidate's strategy and what they're trying to accomplish. Um, but also I'm just interested in will this, what effect will this debate have given that it's competing with a lot of other things out there, uh, both in Washington and, and just around the holiday schedule. So I'm sure most of you will be watching it, uh, but it'll be interesting to see how many of your fellow Americans are joining. So thanks for tuning in and look forward to uh, spending some time with you next week.